All right, we're going to take a look at John 17 today. Um, and, boy, I'm thinking, do we even start with prayer? After studying this prayer, it's just, it's so humbling to, um, to even realize the privilege that we have with prayer. So God, help us to, to honor you with our time here now to be recipients of what your spirit wants us to learn, to glorify you. Amen. You know, prayer requests, pray for me, whatever, pray, prayer requests. Every church bulletin has prayer requests and stuff. We kind of throw it around a lot, don't we? It gets to be, we get kind of used to it. It kind of takes the, it's kind of like a set, oh, I'll pray for you. We just throw it out just nonchalant all the time. But with this, looking at John 17, a lot of things have been coming in, into my mind as I study it. And one of them was from James five sixteen: The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Um, and so we think sometimes it's kind of magical if we get someone really holy or pastor pray for us and, or more people praying for us. And we try to kind of manipulate prayer and our understanding of it. Um, but the prayer of a righteous person availeth much, has great power at his working. So as we look at this prayer of Jesus, he is the only righteous one. So his prayer, as we go through this, know without a shadow of a doubt that this prayer is going to come to fruition. It will happen. It is not... One of the, the only prayer that Jesus prayed, he prayed throughout his whole ministry here on earth. He sometimes would steal away to be by himself to pray. But this prayer is truly defined as the Lord's Prayer. The one in Matthew six nineteen, you know, when the disciples asked, teach us how to pray. That's gotten the label, the Lord's Prayer. But in reality, that's more of a model on how we are to pray with that. But this... This is the Lord's Prayer. Prayer is a longing for your soul toward God. It's a cry of God's people to a compassionate Heavenly Father. The psalmist says in 143.6, I stretch out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. In Psalm 34.15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. So we're learning that to really communicate with God in prayer, it takes a righteous person. There's a lot of people that throw up prayers that are never heard because they aren't coming from a righteous heart. This prayer here in chapter 17 gives us a glimpse of the beautiful communication between Jesus and his Father. And what they address in here... <laughs> is like an entire sweep of redemptive history. He goes from election all the way to future glorification. Am I doing that right? From election to future glorification. I mean, it's, it just sweeps our history. So verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is ending their time in the upper room. It's marking a leaving from there and going into the garden where it's going to rapidly start picking up. 
And it falls on the heels of what he said in the end of chapter 16, where he says to take heart. You'll get tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So he's a victor. He's a victor. It's a done deal. His cry of victory right before the cross is reflective of an undying faith that he has for certain glory. There's no gloom and doom in this. This is all a victor's prayer confidence he lifts his eyes to heaven to acknowledge god's throne room in heaven and he says to the father your son connecting that intimate relationship again that oneness that deity of who christ is he's god yet distinct father and son and now he says the hour has come it is finally approached the apex of eternity past to eternity future. This is, the, this is the crux. This is the apex is the best word I can come up with to mark history is just hours away as he looks at this. The plans that were made in eternity past before we were even thought of, before time began, are now coming to culmination in our time. So let's take a look of what he asked for because he wants us to know what he asked for he wants us to understand he wants us to be have this glimpse of this this it's almost like we're invading on a a very personal relationship that's going on very intimate but he wants us to be there he's calling us in as he says it out loud to the disciples so they could record it for us So he lifted his, when he spoke in these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may, be glorif- may glorify you. That's the whole goal here is glorifying. The prayer is divided into three kind of sections of what he's praying for. He's praying for um, himself. He's praying for the disciples and he's going to be praying for the church. But the theme in the whole thing is to glorify God. And if you went through and just kind of underlined or, or counted them out, how many times glorify? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight times glory, glorify, glorified is in there. The goal of it is to glory. And don't we know that? The whole, everything about it, the heavens declare the glory of God. Our lives are supposed to glorify God. It's all about glorifying God. And glorifying God is when his attributes are made manifest, when his Things about God, who he is, is made known, and there's praise. That's glorifying God. So, throughout his ministry, he was constantly seeking the glory of the one who set him. Everything about Jesus reflected on who God the Father was. It manifested God. When word became flesh, that was God manifested glorifying God. His whole life was glorifying God. And now he's praying that that will continue on. The glory of God, and it's going to be manifested big time through the cross. We're going to see characteristics of God through the cross, forgiveness, mercy, compassion, to a depth that was never known and would never have been made known if it hadn't been for the cross. So the cross is a huge, painful negative, if you want to look at it from the world's perspective, horrific death to take, but the, the amount of glory and making God made known is, can't be expressed in any other way. It had to be through the cross. 
So he asks for, in verse 2, let's carry on. We're just going to walk through this slow at first, and then we'll pick up some speed. Since you have given him authority over all the flesh, he's praying for himself, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And listen to these words. These are the words of God coming out to us. This isn't Molly Gallagher making up this stuff. I really want you to get an understanding of what's happening here. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That accomplishment glorified God, the Father. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's all about making God made known. It's all about receiving from the Father what he had given to the Son, and the Son making himself known to them, and them understanding the words of what's going on. It's a knowledge base. It's a um, understanding of what truth is, and it's an acceptance of what truth is. To glorify God. It's interesting that the disciples were just really having a hard time understanding the concept of his death and what was going to happen. Still kind of hung up on going to be a ride into town, a victor, and set him free from the Romans. And, you know, it was starting to make sense. But but for the last three years, you know, he's been talking about the cross and talking about dying and talking about the things that he was going to be suffering from. And one it may, big one was in Matthew 16, 21, where he says, from this time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, what? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Satan tried to keep Jesus from going to the cross, but it's not going to happen. He goes forward. It's going to be accomplished. He's glorifying the Father because that plan is being accomplished. He has all authority to execute this plan. He even has the authority over his own death in John 10, 17. For this, Jesus says, for this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. This is a prayer of such confidence, such power, such um, a, a motivation to do the will of the Father because of his love for the Father, even though it's going to be horrific for Christ. It's a, it's a confidence. It's, um, and aren't we glad that he did it? Because only through Jesus Christ is eternal life given. That's the only way. It had to be this way. The Father promised the Son before eternity, eternity passed, before creation, before anything was going on, eternity passed. We can't even really comprehend that because it's outside of time. Time was created. But the Father promised the Son 
some redeemed sinners, names that he had in the book of life, to present to his son, purified and washed as a wedding gift, as a bride to his son um, from years past. These names were written in the book of life and they were pledged to the Son as a gift of love from the Father. The church is a gift of love from the Father. I mean, if you can think of yourself that way, that's pretty cool. And it's nothing that we do because we weren't even born when our name was written down. Now, these are hard theological concepts to grapple with, but these pages are right there in red in my Bible. And if we have a hard time understanding them, we just have to step back and say, God, I'm going to receive your words because that's what makes us his children is that we receive his word. And a lot of it's on faith that we believe. Because if we believe that he died on that cross to save us, then we can believe these words that our name was written down before we were even, the earth was here. And he died for us and and rose for us and he washed us and he cleansed us and he sealed us with the spirit so that we can live forever with him it just kind of boggles our mind so we find ourselves as readers of this chapter 17 going into what we would even think of the holy of holies Um, jesus is our great high priest and remember in the old testament when the High priest, once a year, once a year, he had to clean himself up and do all this kind of stuff. And they tied that little rope around him to go in because no one else could go in there. If he had a heart attack in there, they'd have to drag him out because they couldn't go in past not just the outer room, but into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was um, to make sacrifices for the Israelites' sins. This is Jesus. This is part of this, this chapter here has been referred to as the holy of holies of sacred scripture because we are seeing jesus go in as our great high priest into the throne room of god and plead for us or make make requests for us it's not really a pleading it's a request in agreement because he's not going to do anything the father doesn't want him to do talking about what's about to happen and what's going to be happening and what's had happened in the past he's ready to face the cross Um, and he's interceding for the disciples and for us. This is the real Lord's Prayer, his request to the Father before the cross. So as we enter in, and the fact that he wants us to to hear that prayer and like be there intimately and know what's going on, he's he's gathering us in there to, to become one with that conversation. When we're privy to conversations, we're included, aren't we? We're part of it. We're unified. And so we're understanding what's going on. He's pulling us in to that throne room to be able to understand what's going on. So he prays for his disciples. Verse 6 to 19 is the section he's praying for his disciples. And listen to the words again. Jesus is saying, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I have manifested your name. Your name, it just encompasses all that God is. When someone's name, it's like the name entails, this is this person. This is their characteristics. This describes this person. And Jesus is saying, I have manifested all who you are to the ones that you gave me. 
The word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? He manifests to reveal, to make known, to show. Jesus manifested. God became human form to us. To the believers that were a gift from the Father. And he goes on to say that they believed. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. They're accepting this. For I have given them the words that you gave me. There's that oneness. There's that unity. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. That's like a bunch of back and forth stuff. But it's really making a point on Jesus came to manifest who God is, making God made known to the ones that God the Father gave to Jesus, called him out of a redemptive sinner's slush pool of humanity, pulled us out, revealed who he was to them, and they have received those words and they believe. He's talking about these apostles. In verse 9, and he's glorified through this, and he says, in nine, I am not praying for, I am praying for them, those apostles. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He's acknowledging they belong to God the Father. He's given them to me now, and this is who I'm praying for. He's not praying for the world at large. He's interceding and praying for his church, the ones that God's called out. And specifically here, he's praying for the apostles because it's going to be on the apostles' shoulders that the gospel springs forward from the apostles um, who walked with Jesus and, and lived with him. That's what makes it an apostle. We don't have apostles anymore. Um, we have disciples. We have um, uh, we're saints, we are, high pre- we're, we are priests also, royal priesthood, but we're not apostles. So from these 11 men um, and some other associates, Paul was in there too, he actually didn't, you know, he got taught by Jesus in another way. Maybe if we get into Acts, we'll look at that next year. Um, but it was from these men, the gospel was starting to, to spring forward. And it could have gotten twisted by then, because once you start to twist truth, it kind of puts us on a bad path. So it had to have a solid foundation starting out. And he's praying for these apostles. They believed that the word became flesh. He's not praying for the world. Now, Jesus shows love to all people. God shows love to all, all people of the world. And God extends the gospel to all people. All people can hear the gospel. Matthew 5.45 says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Okay, But this prayer here, Christ is interceding for his church as the high priest, for only those who belong to him. Because we were bought with a price, we were adopted into his family, we were sealed, we were cleansed by a Holy Spirit. And because of that, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Or do you not know, Paul says, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The only recorded prayer in Scripture of Christ praying for unregenerate people is in Luke twenty-three, thirty-four. his cry from the cross. 
Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, did he ask for forgiveness for all their sins? Whatever, no. He asked that that sin of hanging them on the cross that day would be forgiven. And that was probably a huge one that was lifted from their list of things. Because there's degrees of hell. And it's, a, and it's a model for us to pray for our enemies. When we pray for our enemies, we actually are able to kind of alleviate their suffering a little bit. It's like one that's not cast against them anymore. And that can be a blessing back to us, too. Maybe we get a reward on our end for that one, you know. Anyways, it's all about glorifying. It's all about glorifying him. In verse 10, um, he said, All are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. God, Jesus is glorified in us as we become transformed more like him. As the world can see, as other people can see Jesus in us, he's glorified. So this is what he's praying for here for these apostles, okay? His attributes are being made known. Okay, he's about to leave them now. So this is this prayer is very timely. In verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So he's going to be leaving them. While he was with them, he took great care of them. He protected them. Their needs were met. They paid their taxes. All these things happened while Jesus was with them. Now he was going to the Father. So he's asking the Father, please protect them. Please protect them. And the whole emphasis here on the apostles and also on us is holiness. He even references his Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name. This is the only place where this title of God is found. So he's going to be looking into that sanctification process that happens as we get to know Jesus, as we read his word. They needed to be holy in the midst of a hostile and wicked world. Because if they just blended in, if they weren't set apart, because that's holiness, set apart, then there's not going to be any difference of who they are. God's not manifested. It just kind of becomes one blur and the gospel, it, it's lost anything it means nothing so he's praying for the apostles for believers to be holy they needed to be holy and he's asking them to keep them um, which is a, a request for spiritual protection keep them in god's name which again re- represents all who he is so jesus is asking the father to guard them according to his holy character and attributes keep them holy keep your attributes keep your the things that are about you your your mercy your grace those things keep them holy your wisdom your power keep them holy in your name first peter 1 5 says by god's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time god's power guards our faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In Romans 8, I always I love Romans 8. God's care is unbroken from eternity past to eternity future. This verse can really be highlighted here verses 29 to 30 in chapter 8. Kind of a compliment verse here. For we know, we know That's like we absolutely know that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, that's eternity past, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's when Christ is glorified in us. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of that is past tense. All of it. We are glorified. Um, So, there's a oneness of believers. Um, We share a common, eternal life. Jesus is very confident that God, that this prayer is going to be answered. He's very confident that um, we're going to be protected, we're going to be cared for, we're going to be holy, we're going to be sanctified because we are God's workmanship. He who began a good work in us will complete it, right? It's him. Okay, we are ambassadors for Christ even. Um, 2 Corinthians five nineteen says, well, it all comes from God. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So this is the plan of redemptive redemptive plan that was formed in history past coming to fruition here. Satan would love to destroy our saving faith, but he cannot destroy that because God's protecting it. That's why people can't lose their salvation. Because if he prayed this and asked God the Father to protect it, there's another argument there. Satan can't take it away. Can't lose it. All right, 17. A request for a sanctifying purity. He goes on to say this. Sanctify them in the truth. Ah, the truth. This is sanctifying. In the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Getting into the word of God, getting into Bible study, getting, studying the word of God, this is how we are sanctified. This, this moves the process along. Yeah, we are God's workmanship, and, and we will you know, become transformed like him. But this is us partnering with him, helping the process move along. Okay? Applying the word of God, what, what we study in here and what we learn and asking God's spirit to help us to live it out. Sanctifying purity. He's asking them, he's asking the Father um, to keep us safe, not just from outside evils, from Satan, but also from internal um, sins and things that can happen with us. Remember when they're washing feet, Jesus said, you don't have to, if you've been washed, one, you know, you've been washed, you've been, you know, you're a believer, you're sealed with the Spirit, you don't have to do that over and over again. You just have to keep your feet washed. So it's just that continual cleansing and keeping us from sinning and confessing our sins and getting back on the right track. This is the sanctifying purity process that's going on to be ambassadors and witnesses in the world. 
So being holy, as we live out this scripture and apply it to our lives, and Jesus is um, made known in the way we live our lives, we're giving glory to God with that. Okay, the last part of this stuff is he's praying for us. He's praying for us. And, the, and the, the two things he's praying for us for here is unity and, and, the, and glory, being united in, in that glory. So let's look at unity together. There's a lot of that going on here. Verse 20. I do not ask for those only, just for those apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Wow. You just have to stop and ponder that for a minute to know that he was praying for us. And if Jesus, you know, prayers of a righteous man availeth much, well, then these are probably going to be answered, aren't they? But also for those who will believe in him through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory, again, that you have given me, I have given to them because his spirit is going to live in us. The truth is there. He's made it known. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me them even as you loved me. Boy, there's a lot in that. I don't even think I'm doing it very much justice, but grab hold of the idea that Jesus is praying for us to be one, that we are part of the body of Christ, that we are unified in him, just like father and son are unified. Jesus only did the things the father taught him to do and spoke the words that he was told to speak and manifested his who God is. We got to know who God was because of him. The world needs to know who God is, who Jesus is through us. Through us. We're it. We're the ambassadors down here for this. So he's praying for that to happen. And, and as that happens, if Christ and, and if God is one, um, then I can't emulate God in the way I think God is, and somebody else emulate God the way they think he is, then you've got two different gods here. So we've got to be living out the word of God the way the word of God says to live it out, because that's oneness, and that's how the whole world's going to see who the one true God is, because all the believers are behaving in the same way. Does that make sense? And that's why we can't misinterpret scripture and lay it out there in different ways, because um, we're just going to confuse the world. And, not do our, and we're not glorifying God when that happens either. So all believers, even the ones who aren't yet born yet, are written in the, the book of life, okay? Um, this is an inward unity that he's talking about. It's not saying that we all have to look the same thing. It's not saying that we all go to the same denomination. It's not saying that we all have to live in the same way or have the same lifestyles or drive the same car or weigh the same weight. <laughs> I don't know why I said that one. It's not that kind of unity, okay? It's, an, it's a spiritual unity based in the life of Christ, that Jesus Christ is this, and that we should all act and, and live our lives as Jesus would. It's not an outward organizational unity. 
but it's maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's in Ephesians 4, 3. Okay? And this preservation of us, our unity, it's not something that we need to do. It's something that, that Christ is asking God the Father to do. There's one spirit, there's one body, there's one hope. There's one Lord Jesus Christ, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And if we're all living as Christians should be living according to this word, there's going to be a a unity with that, okay? Verse 21, um, in the middle of it, says, Father, you're in me and I in you, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. That's our witness to the world. That's our, our testimony out there. It's an observable unity that gives evidence to the world of the gospel. Okay? It's how we love each other. It's how we support each other. It's how we encourage one another to do the right thing. It's transformed lives. We all, from 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the other. Now, the more we know this word, the more we apply this word, the more we submit our will to the will of God and and, and, and honor him and love him through obedience, we become more and more glorified from one degree of glory to the next. So next time you're tempted to do something stupid or sinful or negligent or just kind of shelve your Christianity, realize you've got to put a hold on your glory right there. You reach a certain level and that's it, you know? You're not shining very much. But if you can push through it and do the right thing and be obedient, do that hard thing, ask for forgiveness, forgive, don't hold a grudge, whatever it is, I don't know, don't cheat on your taxes, I don't know, we've all got our own garbage. We are being transformed more into the glory of Christ and reflecting him. And that's what it's all about. And he's praying that, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's a a prayer to unite with him, it's such an overwhelming privilege that we get to go to heaven, you know? What a privilege that is. Um, that his desire for us to have eternal fellowship with him, the glory in heaven, we don't have quite the understanding of heaven. The glory in heaven is not going to be the streets of gold and what it looks like. The glory of heaven is going to be the presence of the Lamb, right? Right? Our supreme joy is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever from Psalms 23. Experiencing that perfect, intimate, holy fellowship with Jesus and all the saints forever. 
we need to work harder at keeping our sights on heaven and not getting caught up down here because that's where the real glory is. He goes on to say that with this future glory that's happening, that Christ's incarnation when he came in human form, it was veiled. He was veiled in flesh. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That we see, it's a glory we see, but it's a veiled glory. Only in heaven will he be fully manifested. Only in heaven will we see him just as he is. From 1 John. Only in heaven... Um, then that verse from the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know fully, even as I have been fully known. You know, I was doing an intake the other day on someone that came in and, and they wore their mask and that was okay. They, they don't have to wear their mask with me, but um, she, she left it on. She's really the only one that ever really left it on. But I, I couldn't read her. I couldn't see her. I couldn't. And when I was looking at, okay, you know, affect and, you know, facial expression, I couldn't even answer. I had no clue. There was a part of this woman that was unknown to me because I couldn't see her face. So the day will come where we will see him unveiled face to face, fully knowing who he is, even now as he fully knows who we are. What a, try and wrap your head around that one. We will see his face, and his name will be on our foreheads. Eternity past through eternity future, God the Father has chosen a people and given them to his Son. He has prepared an eternal kingdom for, for us where we will behold his glory forever, united in love O righteous Father, even though the world does not know them, you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that that love which was you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We're united in love. Christ closes out that prayer with such confidence as he's going to the cross, that that prayer would be granted. And we are the recipients of that prayer. I'll read this last verse for you here. Second Corinthians 4, 6 to 7. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Almighty God, we are so grateful that you prayed for us. Just the knowledge of knowing that you prayed for us and that this prayer will be granted just empowers us to go boldly out and live for you. Our lives are in your hands to shine for you. May you be glorified as we go from here. In the name of Christ, amen.